so the first year that I moved here, um, or the first year that I lived here, I should say, it was uh, in Oklahoma, it was over 100 degrees and didn't rain for 44 days in a row from August through September. That's where I grew up. So this, this feels a little different, <laughs> if I can just say that. We've been looking um, at the book of Acts over the summer, and I don't know if you've read the book of Acts. It's um, I conti- week to week, continually continue to be fascinated by the things that the Holy Spirit led a man named Luke to include in the story of the early church, um, and the things that he'll just mention in passing and then not explain at length. There are a lot of details in this particular chapter about a famine and about uh, one of the places that the early church was, but we don't have any writings from that place called Antioch. Um, And sometimes the details to you and I can just be boring. We're sort of like, well, maybe I'll remember this for that Bible trivia game that I never play, but why else does it matter? And I want to say it matters because the, the details can help us remember that the book of Acts is a histor- an historical document. Archaeology continues to uncover uh, the cities that Acts talks about, the ones that are no longer around. The names of rulers continue to be uncovered. Some of the names of even uh, members of the early church. And what that tells us is that it's all true. I do not pretend, I've said this a lot this summer, I do not pretend that those of you that are considering the gospel of Jesus, that in two minutes or 20 minutes, I can convince you that miracles happen. But I do have to hold this text up to you and tell you that historically and evidentially, it's incredibly accurate in terms of the way that the different governmental structures functioned around the Mediterranean, I always have to think, is it Caribbean or Mediterranean? It's the Mediterranean. (laughs) There were so many different kinds of government. So you have a different kind of queen in Africa that's referenced in Acts chapter 8, and you have uh, an Italian soldier in Acts chapter 10, and uh, the description of the kind of um, group he led is so specific. And that's the kind of stuff that you and I will read it, and we'll just be like, why do I need to know about that? Well, you don't have to remember all the little details. I can't remember them. And I'm a pastor and I've studied the text very uh, deeply. But they're an indicator to you and I that these things happened. Which is then an indicator that Christianity is, is in fact not a religion. There are religious elements to it as a response of what happened. But what if it's all true? And the book of Acts tells us indirectly and directly over and over and over and over again that these things really happened to real people and they were written down for God's glory for you and I to learn and because that's the way it happened. Last week we looked at a story of um, a couple of different miraculous communications with the Apostle Peter who learned for about the 10th or the 15th time that the love of God is for all people. Everyone is fully included. Jews and Gentiles and Greek-speaking God followers and everyone else of every race and creed. 
And the reason that I remind us of that is because Acts chapter 11 picks up on Acts chapter 10 with Peter explaining this again to the church. And what I want to point out again this week, what does it say about God the Father that this story is told and then retold in a different way, and then retold in a different way, that Peter gets to learn this multiple ways and multiple times. Peter, who spent so much time with Jesus, who's the rock upon which God built his church. It says something about us, that it takes us a little while to learn things, but it also says something about God the Father, and that is that he is patient with you and I. He does not leave us as we are, as we sang, he's going to continue to grow us up. But his character is patient. So if you have your Bible, I'm reading in Acts chapter 11. And if you do not have your Bible, I might encourage you to uh, look off into the trees while you listen or to close your eyes. And the reason is, the Bible was meant to be read aloud. Um, you and I have short attention spans, and so this can be tricky for us, but it's okay. Um, to just listen for a few minutes. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout, throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That happens in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 8, and it's just getting around because they didn't have uh, email in those days, so it takes a couple days for the news to spread. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. These are God-following Jews who have followed Jesus, but were continuing to keep Jewish law. This is a theme of the New Testament. How Jewishly do we follow Jesus? And it, the, the, the New Testament explains that and goes back and forth on it throughout. Not back and forth on it, but explains it in more and more detail. Man, it's going to take a while for me to read this if I keep doing that. I'll stop. <laughs> you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that's in Acts chapter 6, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Peter's recounting the story, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there are so many things that there could be more words about that would help you and I. And yet here we are hearing for the third time in two chapters the story of how Peter learned for the 15th time that everybody's in, Jews and Gentiles, Greek-speaking and non. Why are we hearing this story again? For the reasons that I mentioned, you and I often don't learn things very quickly. And it's not because we're foolish, it's just part of being a human being in a complex world with various skill sets and intelligences and beliefs and tendencies, the culture that we're in. It's also to remind us what kind of father God is. Patient. Not leaving us as we are, but patient in growing us up. I love that the brothers who are listening to Peter, members of the circumcision party, these are, these are people that took their faith probably more seriously than most of us. They were very thoughtful about what they did and did not do. They were following Jesus because he rose from the dead and they heard that testimony either firsthand or secondhand, but they were continuing in the practices of their life, um, mostly Jewish or entirely Jewish practices. That's why they were called the circumcision party. They stopped and they listened to Peter and considered. Then they praised, but the reason I paused when I was reading that is we noticed that they considered. So one of the reasons I'm thankful for uh, the fact of sermons, sometimes listen to other people preach here and at other places and I enjoy them. This is our time to consider. It's not the only time I hope, but I do hope that you consider through the words that we sing, through our prayers, through the word, what do we believe? And then they start praising because they heard Peter, they understood the story, there was evidence, the Holy Spirit descended on uh, the men in Cornelius' house just like it did at the beginning of Acts. Peter says, just as on us. And then they rejoice. And the reason that they rejoice is 
despite all the religious things that they know and are confident in and that they were practicing, their bottom line is that they want other people to have the joy that they have. How do they describe that joy? Did you catch that? They also get the repentance that leads to life. And this is where we go from from sort of a history lesson sermon to, to, to frankly a pushback on our current culture for sure, but really every culture. How do we receive the joy of being a Jesus follower? Through learning repentance that leads to life. Paul talks about this in uh, 2 Corinthians. And here they're just alluding to it, but it's what they've been learning as an early church is to ask for forgiveness of God because anytime we sin, it's a violation of his character. Also to ask forgiveness of one another. And that kind of means you and I are, are a mess. I like to say that our need for God is entire. What I mean by that is you and I are not kind of needy. You and I, according to the scriptures, and I think according to our hearts, if we're honest, do not need a little bit of forgiveness. You and I, when it comes to relationship with God and relationship with people, do not need a little help. We need a lot. We actually need all of it. We cannot be smart enough, good enough, behave enough to be accepted by God. And that's not because he's mean. That's because he's holy and cannot be in the presence of sin. But because of the work of Christ, we are reconciled to him, those that have put their faith in Jesus. Let me ask you this question, though. I'm just assuming that in your humanity, you know that you've hurt other people. And perhaps even in your humanity, you're aware that your natural state is one separated from God. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's not your state anymore. But here's my question. What do you do with your guilt? Do you justify it? Well, this is how I learned to do life, so I just do what I was taught. Or they treated me this way, so when I verbally backhanded them, they deserved it. I was tired, so I didn't have as much self-control as I wanted to, but next time, I'll be better. Do you just seek diversions? You had a rough day, you hurt someone either close to you or at work. You just turn on the TV until you're tired enough to go to sleep. Do you try and make sure to atone directly? Like, do you go to them and be like, I'm sorry, that's never going to happen again. And sometimes it doesn't happen again, sometimes it does happen again, but is that what you do with your guilt? Do you kind of atone indirectly? You won't go back to that person because, man, that'd be intense, but you're like, for the rest of my life, I'm going to make sure that I, I don't talk to someone that way again. What do you do with your guilt? One of my very, very, very favorite things about the good news of Jesus is knowing that uh, I'm a mess and I'm loved and then when I follow him, so much of the world is explained. What we're to do with our guilt, if it's all true, if Jesus in fact rose from the dead, is we ask God for forgiveness and then we ask the person for forgiveness. 
we learn a lifestyle of repentance that leads to life, which sounds really harsh, unless you and I are both able and willing, maybe in just our worst moments, to hurt other people. If that's true, if you and I are able and willing to hurt other people, then a lifestyle of repentance that leads to life is our only shot at peace and joy. It sounds so harsh. Our culture is like, but we just need a little more information and then we'll treat people with respect forever, right? I don't know about you. I need more help than that. And so in the early church, when they were learning that it's not just for those of the circumcision party, but also the uncertain, they realized, right, we want them to learn the joy of repentance that leads to life. For those of you that are not sure about this churchy word, repentance, it is, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Which means asking them to absorb the pain that you caused them which is awful. And the only alternative to that is to just continue hurting one another. So it's actually a wonderful option, repentance that leads to life. So Peter recounts the story and they rejoice in Jerusalem and the center of Christianity continues to spread. I love that Barnabas said, uh, remain faithful with steadfast purpose. Kind of wish he had gotten to write some of the books of the New Testament if he's going to write words like that. In the middle of that, did you notice a prophet shows up? You guys know what a New Testament prophet is? I, I think many of you do. We have some serious Bible studiers and scholars here. It's one who speaks truth. That's why there's a distinction in the text between a prophet who then foretells something. I have a little bit of trouble as a pastor because oftentimes I'll hear of someone with the gift of prophecy and I don't see the good they're doing in their local context. A prophet, according to the New Testament, is one who comes in and speaks truth to the people. This particular prophet also tells something about the future. And what does the church do? They do not over-spiritualize the truth-speaking and foretelling. They send some money to help. Oftentimes that that term has become one that just is fraught with over-spiritualizing of our life. In the early church, when someone stood up and spoke truth to the church, when the Holy Spirit indicated a future happening, then what happened was they practically got involved and were helpful. The center of Christianity is spreading because there isn't a center. At the time, a lot of the apostles were in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in a few short years after this text was written. Did you know that? It's one of the things that's unique about Christianity. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? Is there one in the back or not? Okay, thank you. Are any of the rest of us actually followers of Jesus? Is it okay that we haven't been there? I think you know the answer to that. That's why you're not worried right now. You're like, what rhetorical thing is he doing? This is not very interesting. (laughs) It's worth noticing that Christianity doesn't have a center. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, faith in me is the center. Just 
let that blow your mind until you're with me in heaven and then you'll fully understand it. How many religions do you know that don't have a center? Why? Because it's about if you do this, then the gods are happy with you or the God is happy with you. And Christianity is not that way. You can't make God happy with you. He's too holy. The world's too broken. But through faith in me, you're reconciled wherever you are. It does not require of us a pilgrimage. That's why the early church was would just go back and forth, or the, the church in the Middle Ages especially, would just go back and forth and back and forth on the importance of pilgrimages. Because sure, if you want to go see Jerusalem, that's, not, that's fine. That doesn't make you any more or less of a follower of Christ. And the church continues to go on. Barnabas and Paul are together in Antioch. Men and, and, and women are gifted in prophecy. Women is in 1 Corinthians, not this passage. Speaking truth to one another that turns into practical help for one another. What's happening is men and women are turning from their self to God because that's the alternative to faith in Jesus is really faith in ourself. So I asked earlier what you do with guilt and I wonder what you do with your longing for internal peace. What do you do for your longing for joy? According to the book of Acts and the Christian scriptures, the only hope that we have for joy and for peace is in a trusting relationship with Jesus. And then, after we trust him, to remain faithful, as Barnabas said, with steadfast purpose. Most of us are not called to grand, giant, whatever for Jesus. We're called to be a follower of him in the place that we already are. Why am I pointing that out to you? Because we don't know much about Antioch. And that's where Acts chapter 11 ends. And yet you and I are called into God's story to learn to love him and neighbor where we are. And when we're with him, I believe we'll see how he drew our story into his story and accomplished great things. But the way that you and I embrace that is uh, following him where we are. As Barnabas did, as Barnabas encouraged the followers of Jesus in Antioch to remain faithful with steadfast, steadfast purpose. The place of business that you find yourself tomorrow or Wednesday, remain faithful there with steadfast purpose. What's my purpose? To love God and enjoy him where you are. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Confession, Shorter Catechism, excuse me. The family that you find yourself in, remain faithful with steadfast purpose. And if you're like, if you just knew my family, come down here after the sermon. We'll swap some stories. We'll see if you can beat me for complexity. Some of you can, but not many. And here I am telling you that my hope for joy and peace, Matt Blazer from Oklahoma, who has mastered divinity but little else, my hope, among other things, is to remain faithful. That was supposed to be funny, by the way. I haven't actually mastered it. That's just what my degree says. My hope with my extended family and my family today is to remain faithful 
with steadfast purpose. Many of us struggle internally with anxiety, be it chemical or circumstantial or spiritual. Our emotions rage and some people can tell and some people don't. What are we to do? We remain faithful with steadfast purpose. What does that mean? It means that we turn to Christ in the morning, in prayer, in conversation with friends, here at church, attending and singing, praying, serving to remember what we believe. And what is it that we believe? That we have a good Father in heaven. That because of the work of Jesus Christ and nothing that we do, if we have placed our faith in him, we are saved. And we remember that we have the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit then leads us into are lives of repentance, which sounds harsh unless we're capable of hurting other people, in which case those are lives of life, joy, and peace. So if you're a follower of Christ, I hope that that encourages you. If you're considering the gospel of Jesus, I hope that you know what you're considering. It is that you cannot save yourself and he is ready and available and even now pursuing you into relationship with him as he was the circumcision party and the Greek-speaking God followers and the Hellenists and you and me. Some who grew up in church, some who did not grow up in church. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we watch the early church be formed through your Holy Spirit's wisdom, purpose, power, grace, mercy, and truth, would you encourage us that because of the work of the Son and your patient love and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can remain faithful with steadfast purpose. Would you guide us, Father, to lead lives of repentance that leads to life, remembering your forgiveness and remembering to ask others for forgiveness. Father, as we continue to sing, would your Holy Spirit give us a sense in our inner being that you are good, loving, patient, and true. Would you encourage our hearts in this way? Amen.